friends and lovers, welcome to this Buds on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Mr. Drew Davendale. Greetings. So I guess it's just time to have a little intermission where we talk about some films, what we've done seen over the past month, with no particular motive other than that. With that in mind, we'll kick off today's activities with a look at a film called The Breadwinner. Drew, would you care to give us a rundown on that? I certainly would. Now, having loved both their 2009 debut feature, The Secret of Kills, and especially their beautiful, melancholy 2014 fantasy Song of the Sea, I was very excited to see Irish studio Cartoon Saloon's most recent film, The Breadwinner. Beyond its name, its release date, frustratingly far away as it doesn't get released in the UK until the 25th of May, months after its North American release, and being vaguely aware that it was set in Afghanistan, I intentionally kept my knowledge of the film to a minimum. This often works out well, but for the breadwinner? To be honest, I'm really not so sure. While the previous two films from the studio had their darker moments and some heavier themes, notably Song of the Sea's tackling of loss, blame and grief, they were very much family films. Cork native Nora Toomey's The Breadwinner totally blindsided me though. Based on Canadian author Deborah Ellis's novel of the same name, The Breadwinner is a tale of Parvana, a young girl living in Taliban-ruled Kabul shortly before the US invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. She spends her days helping her father, formerly a professor and now a street trader, and missing a leg after being injured in the Soviet-Afghan war, sell goods and services from a blanket laid out in a dusty street. Things begin to go south for them after Narula, her father, gets on the wrong side of a very angry young Taliban member, Idris, who castigates him for having the temerity to have a female outside, the Taliban having made even the Ferengi look progressive and open-minded in their attitudes towards their womenfolk. <laughs> Thanks to Idris, Narula is soon after arrested, for being guilty of having argued with Idris, apparently, and carted away to prison. Surprisingly early then, in what I had fully believed to be a film that, if not aimed at, then certainly suitable for children, I lost count of the number of times that four-letter epithets crossed my mind, and quickly resolved to start using rhyming slang to keep, for instance, this podcast clean, and maintain my recently re-established desire not to use so many dang cuss words. So, let me just tell you this. Idris is a Russian front, and no mistake. Sadly, he is far from alone in a culture where... Look, I'll be honest with you, I've never really understood this. It's like the Taliban, and those like them, are working under the assumption that women are actually gorgons, and that (laughs) seeing one in the wrong place will immediately turn them to stone or something. Without their father, the remaining family, Parvana, her mother Fatima, older sister Soraya, and infant brother Zaki, can't even eat. Not because they've got no money. They haven't even gotten that far yet. No, because they're not even allowed to buy food. The shopkeepers will be in trouble for even talking to a female. I'm very much struggling with the whole no foul language thing, and we're about (laughs) ten minutes into the film. Pervana and her mother attempt to reach the prison to beg for Narula's release, but a moment of violence, every bit as shocking an animation as it would have been in live action, sees the family soon terrorised into staying indoors and considering any possible way out of Kabul. But they still need to eat, and it is here that Pervana becomes the breadwinner of the title. Cutting off her long hair and donning her deceased elder brother's clothes, she ventures out into the market as a boy. There she encounters Shausia, another girl posing as a boy, and together the two scrape together what money they can, 
doing odd jobs, selling clothes and writing letters. Both have escaped from their situation on their minds, Parvana by rescuing her father and Shauzia by fleeing hers. Interwoven with her real-life struggles are the tales, animated in a cutout style quite different to the main story, that Parvana tells Zaki to entertain and calm him. The stories of a young boy who sets off to challenge the evil elephant king, Babar he is not, whose jaguar minions made off with his village's precious seeds, needed to sow crops for next year's harvest. The breadwinner's themes are hardly subtle, but given that lack of power and freedom for women is all too true, all too common and unequivocally wrong, there seems little need to present them in any other way than front and centre. And in case you think that this is not the case, may I remind you that our current news item is the fact that Saudi Arabia is about to allow women to drive. And many men in that country still oppose that. It's 2018, by the way. (laughs) Now, it would be easy for this film to be completely one-sided, but fortunately, not all of the Taliban members depicted are as one-dimensional as the it'd be comical if it wasn't so sadly true Idris. Ellis's story acknowledging that even the Taliban contains a range of types of people in its ranks. Most notably here, the imposingly large Razak. And there is the definite suggestion that the actions of many of the shopkeepers, for instance, is due to fear of the Taliban enforcers and not shared beliefs. I have seen complaints that the breadwinner doesn't go far enough in its exploration of the freedoms and differences of being, or passing, as a man, in Afghani culture in particular and a seeming emphasis on sexuality and gender. But to be honest, I think this film has plenty going on without that, especially since Parvana and Shauzia are largely asexual, or pre-sexual, during this film. Their minor references to growing up and getting married seem almost entirely to do with that being the expected path, or a way out, rather than personal desire. No, the only two real issues I have for this film are, one, I was very sceptical about the veracity of this film, coming from the pen of a Canadian and very, very white writer. But Deborah Ellis spent many months interviewing Afghani refugees in camps in Pakistan, so I'm pretty happy to give her the benefit of the doubt. And two, while I really liked the animation, the Elephant King story didn't go anywhere, especially the final portion, which didn't really seem to pay off in its relation to the main narrative as it seemed it would, instead feeling rather rushed and unsatisfying. But otherwise, it's a great film and looks lovely which is good because the inside of my mind certainly did not by the time this was over. This is a very strong recommendation to watch it though, as I appreciate that may not be hugely clear. It's powerful, touching stuff, but with simple moments of warmth and joy to make it bearable, which also serves to make it more believable. Humans in general, and children in particular, finding and needing those moments of light amongst the darkness. With three such strong films to their credit, and such a clear gift for telling stories with weight, Cartoon Saloon, despite their somewhat light-hearted name, deserve to now be mentioned alongside the likes of Studio Ghibli and Laika, and I eagerly anticipate whatever comes from them next. Yeah, likewise, really, in, well, about to say enjoyed this, that's maybe not quite the right term yes, for it. Yes, enjoy's not uh, the best word, I think, but yeah. I would understand what you meant. Yeah, as a, as a touch of the grave of the fireflies, that um, mm. powerful work, and uh, yeah, well animated. It's charming characters, it's a charming uh, central character to the basis around and uh yeah terrible terrible plight and i say i I don't know how true it is but it certainly feels quite truthful from everything we've heard about the taliban they're they're not a cuddly bunch by the (laughs) no they do i mean idris in particular and Mm -hmm. i think there was something of the the angry violent young man about him 
that is nothing necessarily to do with the Taliban. It's more just to do with being angry young men. And there, there yeah. are a lot of them in the world, unfortunately. But yes, there's enough documentary footage and news reports about exactly what the Taliban are or were like that, yeah, that, that this has a ring of truthiness about it. And then some... Yeah. Yeah, I guess I don't really have anything more to say other than you've already quite ably explained. I, but we not seen any of his the previous works from uh, Cartoon Saloon. Uh, we'll are very happily go back and watch them now because this was a really good, really good um, film. And you know, it's the it's the kind of thing that I wonder if it would have got a bit more attention if it was live action rather than animated. It's, it's one of these films you kind of think would be. so likely to be in the, the kind of oh, this, this must be Oscar contender movie or that kind of thing. Because of how it's telling the narrative, and if purely by going to a cartoon, it's kind of it's less than that in some people's eyes, and it really shouldn't because it's a, a really good way to tell the story. No, I mean you would hope the work of things like Grave of the Fireflies and particularly Takahata's stuff at Studio Ghibli, mm-hmm. um, while I I didn't care for much, and I don't think you either, but films like Persepolis mm-hmm. from maybe a decade ago now, yeah. uh, animations tackling more adult stuff that you would hope that 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 bias that yeah. preconceived notion of animation would be would be gone by now um, yeah i don't know i mean i don't think they're doing themselves any favors by calling themselves cartoon saloon no <laughs> uh, because it sounds like a hanna-barbera type thing yeah, where, yeah whereas it's not and none of their features have been like that they while the secret of kells and the song of the sea are very much family films whereas this isn't yeah. Um, yeah, certainly it's a 12A rating in this country, so I think it would be PG-13 in the United States. Um, so yeah, it's older children, um, more mature children, it, it would be a good idea for them to watch this, but it's not something the whole family could sit down and watch like their previous works. I don't know, it's, it falls into sort of strange middle ground, I feel, Scott, um, mm. because yeah, you've got, it's not a, an animation that the whole family can watch because it's too adult, but the adult yeah. themes a lot of adults are going to be put off because it's an animation. Yeah. Yeah, so I know exactly what you mean about the, well, it'd be better as live action. I wonder, in retrospect, and given, I, I agree, it doesn't actually wind up going anywhere. That whole narrative, the whole story within a story that's been told, probably doesn't belong in there. Because if anything's there to appeal to a younger audience, it's that. But mm. it doesn't really do anything of any note. And I don't really see how it applies to anything. It's either the most obvious metaphor that... <laughs> just shouldn't it isn't actually a metaphor it's almost an exact retelling of what's happening in the central narrative or it doesn't seem to have any other kind of point to it um so uh, you, you've put in something to aim at younger generations that probably aren't going to be watching this and if they did wouldn't get anything out of anyway so it's a bit strange yeah. it's a nicely animated tale I, 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 like, I like the style of it it's nice to describe how it's a kind of change of pace but it doesn't actually seem to do anything <laughs> yeah, that's, I I do like the animation of it, and I mean because it begins by partly its character because it picks up from Parvana and her father. He's like teaching her to tell stories, and it's, it's a continuation of that while he's gone, and at the same time, it's to calm down her infant brother, who's kind of freaked out by um, what's going on by his family being hurt, by his family missing, the change in her appearance. So it works as a character piece and then it just, it feels like it needs to go one or two ways and it doesn't really do either. It needs to either be full-on metaphor that it's some sort of 
psychological exploration of what's going through her mind and then really follow through on that, that she can come to some realisation through these stories that she's telling. Yeah. Or it needs to just be simply for entertainment escapism for her and her family. Yeah. And it kind of falls somewhere in the middle there and doesn't really achieve either particularly well. Yeah. And entertaining <laughs> is, 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 yes, it's probably, it needs to be uh, one thing or the other or excise from the film. But it's, um, it's still, I wouldn't let that put you off of the film at all. No, absolutely not, no. Yeah, but uh, I am hoping you're suitably forewarned now because uh, if you ever go back, Scott, to catch up with Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea, which I urge you to do, they're fantastic. Yes, well, there's there's definitely a melancholy nature to Song of the Sea because it's about this kid who blames his baby sister for the death of his mother and his father's kind of become a bit distant after that. Then it mixes in Celtic mythology to, to make a really kind of fantastical story in it. Isn't that Tyrion's arc in uh, Game of Thrones? <laughs> less patricide, oh, okay. less drinking, <laughs> less swearing, but otherwise largely similar, yes. <laughs> and it's so it's about loss and and guilt and, and all those things, but it's 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 definitely a family film. In the way that our best, the right. best family films are, that it's the whole family can enjoy. It's not just something that adults tolerate. I mean, I got an awful lot from that film. I know other people who did too. Having seen that, then just I, I had this in my mind that, ah, oh, The Breadwinner, it's going to be the same sort of tone or the same sort of level anyway. And then that's like people are being rounded up by Taliban. And in that moment in the alleyway that I um, alluded to when I was speaking yeah. about it, it's like, oh, oh, oh right. That that <laughs> totally threw me for a loop. I was yeah. quite shocked by that. Ah, so I think better to. Uh, this never happened to Yogi Bear. Yeah. I think better to know going in that this is dealing with much much more serious topics. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's yeah, a strong recommendation from both of us. Then that sounds good. We are going to move on to another animation. This time from Hiromasa Yonobayashi, uh, who you may well know from Studio Ghibli's works when Marnie was there and Arietti. He's on his own now, with his own studio. And has he done a good job, Mr. Morris? That's what we need to know. Yes, uh, we'll find out as we talk about Mary and the Witch's Flower. Uh, the titular young lass Mary finds herself shipped off to her great-aunt Charlotte's manor house in advance of her parents' arrival, but has little to do. She tries to be useful around the home, but being clumsy by nature causes her far more trouble than help. She can't even wield an adult-sized broomstick properly, causing a farcical scene that local lad Peter mocks Mary for, along with her unruly red hair, which she's quite self-conscious of. While exploring the garden one day, she follows two cats into the woods and finds a little broomstick and an unusual blue flower, later identified by the entirely normally named gardener Zebedee <laughs> as, it's a strange choice, uh, as a fly-by-night, which... Folklore would have witches covet for its magical powers. Uh, for a good reason, it turns out, as another piece of trademark Mary Bland clumsiness sees her crush part of the flower against the broomstick, making it fly, and also giving her the ability to use magic. Unbidden, the broomstick takes her to the Endor College for Witches. Not that Endor, presumably. Uh, where... Distinct lack of Ewoks, which is good, because yes. I would just have spent the film wanting it to be drop-kicked, so... <laughs> where the seemingly kindly Madame Mumblechook and Dr. D assume that she is a new student and give her the grand tour, with Mary's flower-born powers greatly impressing all. Eventually, as her powers wear off, and still half thinking she's dreaming, Mary confesses to having no innate magical ability and tells Madame about the flower. 
This turns out to be a mistake, as both Madame and the Doctor are obsessed with the fl- rare flower, believing it, with some reason, it to be the key to magical transformation of animals and people, as their menagerie of test subjects will attest to. While they seem to let Mary leave amiably enough, they turn heel immediately, kidnapping Peter as leverage to have Mary deliver the flower to them before double-crossing her and proceeding with experiments that will put Peter in danger. Mary, of course, having none of that, sets about saving him, aided by the broomstick and the last of the flower's magic. This, as you mentioned earlier, directed by Hiromasa Yonabashi, uh, last spoken of here in the most recent Studio Ghibli episode. The director of Arietti and Will Marnie was there, left Team Ghibli at some point, I believe, during the uncertainty of what was happening with after Miyazaki's latest, or maybe the one before that retirement, um, which is now apparently undone. We'll see what happens. I, I uh, don't imagine that Miyazaki will ever retire. He's going to die at Studio Ghibli. Yeah, seems most likely at this point, doesn't it? Uh, so he joined the fledgling studio Ponok, along with a number of ex-Ghiblis, and the heritage shows. And if I didn't know differently, I'm sure I'd think this was a Ghibli film where you sat me down blind in front of it. Uh, I think even their studio ident is a bit, it's a bit on the nose, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a very pretty film with relatable, amusing characters and nicely handled action, and I thoroughly entertained. I was thoroughly entertained throughout the piece. I heartily recommend it. I, I say this now because while there's a few criticisms that I could make, and indeed I will, these are things that stop the very good film becoming an excellent one. And as a tired old geezer, I often sound much more negative than I feel. <laughs> to a degree, it has a touch of the Arietti about it, by which I mean there's a bunch of stuff that happens and then it stops. <laughs> and there's not much in the way of character development for anyone. Mary's quite confident and determined at the start of the film, so unless maybe feeling a bit better about her hair counts, uh, there's not much of a character arc. Still, she's charming enough that I don't think it matters, apart from missing an opportunity to leverage some more emotion out of it. I, t- I guess I'd love to find a reliable comparison of budget and schedule between this and, say, when Marnie was there, because this isn't quite as polished as Yonabashi's uh, Ghibli output, but it's really close. And I wonder if there's the same, you know, it's done when it's done attitude that Ghibli seems to have, or at Studio Ponoc, if financial realities of being a brand new studio might have caused something of a different mindset. Uh, but that's really heading into idle speculation territory. And it seems like the success of Mary and Witch's Flower has ensured at least a short term future for Studio Ponoc, and I very much look forward to whatever they produce next. Uh, yes, I quite like this. Not absolutely blown away with it. It's, I think, aimed perhaps a younger audience than a lot of the other works that I've seen from him. There's not much, I think, of, of depth to this film. I can't really see myself going back to it to watch it in any particular uh, hurry. But I certainly watched it for the hundred or whatever minutes it was and was greatly entertained all the way throughout it. And I thought it looked very nice. Um, so yes, it's easy to recommend, although it's perhaps not quite as vital as uh, something like The Breadwinner was. Uh, yes, I feel largely the same as you there, Scott. It's, it's beautiful. That's undeniable. Mm-hmm. And that's not really a surprise given that Arietti and when Marnie was there challenged Miyazaki for how yeah. beautiful their films looked. And yeah, you're probably right that it's I think it's maybe aimed slightly younger than certainly when Marnie was there. And mm-hmm. it doesn't have the depth. I don't know much about the book it's based on. So I don't know how much of that is actually just that there's not that much in the book either. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a lovely film. Uh, generally, genuinely quite funny in places. And yeah, the the big issues I have are fairly similar to yours. Like, there's not a lot of character development, as you say, and there are there are moments where I thought it was going to have a like a, the magic's in you sort of thing, 
and it didn't yeah. and in one way that's good <laughs> but at the same time it sort of undercut parts of the other points of the film um, yeah and the the big issue i have with it and again i'm not sure how much of this is from the source as well I, i'm entirely unfamiliar with the source book and the writer a woman called mary stewart mm-hmm. and the book it's based on it's called the little broomstick or the littlest broomstick and maybe just be the little broomstick i suspect i'm confused that with the littlest hobo yes <laughs> uh, yes the little broomstick um there's a moment where like she finds a spell book and she uses some spells except basically there's one more or less deus ex machina spell and that's all that's the magic that's actually used and that's a little disappointing yeah. There doesn't seem to be much sort of inventiveness or resourcefulness from the main character. I mean, she's she's strong-headed and all the sort of character you describe as plucky, but doesn't seem particularly inventive or resourceful, which it felt like the film really needed. I still enjoyed it a lot, um, so it's probably not that big of a deal. It didn't mm. seem to hinder my enjoyment so much. It's more just it didn't go as I was expecting it to, and maybe that's good. I don't know. But yeah, it's a very promising start for Studio Ponoch. And certainly in quality of animation, they may be the people that pick up the gauntlet thrown down, put gently down, whatever by Studio Ghibli, because I don't know what's happening with them. Put down, picked up, worn, put back down again, worn. Give it a wee bit of a polish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what's what's going on with them. I will just say that I don't think I'm, I'm going to want to watch it again anytime soon, as much as I enjoyed it. But I may give the English dub a go at some point in the future just because I believe it has Ewan Bremner playing Flanagan and <laughs> Ewan Bremner's great but uh, I take or leave most of the rest of the English voice cast apart from Ruby Barnhill who I think is the girl that was in the BFG and is therefore an appalling actor um, <laughs> if the BFG was any good guide anyway but yes Ewan Bremner's in it, so that may be a, a good reason to watch it then with English dub. Otherwise, I would normally give that a side swipe. Side swipe? Body <laughs> swerve. <laughs> I am confusing my words tonight. Uh, yes. Fair enough. I guess we'll play on with a seamless link into Ready Player One, which is, I guess, also based on a book for two-year-olds. <laughs> don't know. I don't know who this book is for apart from the author um which is a point i will come to later people who remember things yeah. well no because if people if it was for people who remember things the book and want to be reminded of them. yes the book wouldn't need to be like it is um or the film for that matter uh, now now this may be an unnecessary caveat but without having had time before we began recording to fully read through my notes for this i have a feeling they may be terribly incoherent for, for which I will apologise in advance if, advance if it turns out to be the case. <laughs> mm-hmm. But what I'm going to start with is a book review. I passionately hate Ernie Klein's Ready Player One. And it is without a doubt one of the worst books that I have ever read. Okay, granted, that's barely a review. But <laughs> I could probably spend all day talking about everything wrong with it. And no one, especially not me, wants to hear that. <laughs> Ready Player One is an inexplicably popular book that is, with little need for exaggeration, about 90%. Do you remember this 1980s pop culture thing? Well, I remember this 1980s pop culture thing. Let me explain to you what I remember about this 1980s pop culture thing. It's like a novelised form of those Wikipedia and other wiki articles along the lines of 1980s in video gaming and Cars of the Fast and the Furious franchise. 
actual, actual article that exists, by the way, <laughs> and it is painful. Not only is it pandering to geek culture nostalgia, it's spelling it all out. Even the few moments when you think that a reference isn't going to be explained and that the reader is going to be allowed to work it out for his or herself are soon followed by another list of what the thing is and why. <laughs> it's beyond infuriating. And as if the masturbatory geek-pleasing wasn't bad enough in written form, the audiobook is narrated by Will Wheaton. So why, then, you might ask, entirely reasonably, would I watch a film adaptation of this sticky mess? <laughs> well... I suppose there are three reasons. Firstly, despite my sometimes cynical manner, I'm actually quite an optimist. Secondly, Spielberg. The man can generally be relied upon to produce a shiny movie. And thirdly, the other 10% of the Ready Player One book I actually kind of like and always thought would actually make for great cinematic set pieces. Sadly, the screenplay, written by Klein himself, throws away almost all of that good stuff entirely and most of the film looks like a particularly gaudy video game. Hmm. So I'll direct you back to my first reason and add four. I am an idiot. Set in the year 2045, meaning that the film's fawning over 1980s nostalgia would be like a film set this year cooing about Perry Como and Bing Crosby and going gaga for Sputnik, Wagon Train and Queen Elizabeth II's televised coronation. Ready Player One is set in a post-energy crash dystopia where the great form of escapism and entertainment is via the Oasis, a free-to-access virtual reality world that is so far-ranging and popular that it has become synecdoche for the internet in general. After the death of the Oasis's founder, James Halliday, Mark Rylance, also known as Anorak, a telling name sure to be lost in US audiences and possibly even on the author himself, a contest is announced. An Easter egg has been hidden in the Oasis, with three special keys required to access it. The first to find the Easter egg will inherit Halliday's fortune and control of the Oasis. Given that this would more or less instantly make the winner the richest and most influential person on the planet, it's quite the prize. The egg is particularly well hidden though, so after years pass and interest and belief in the egg wanes, only a hardcore remains. An evil corporation called IOI headed by the cartoonishly evil Nolan Sorrento, Ben Mendelsohn, and a population of Gunters, short for Egg Hunters, who are steeped in 1980s pop culture and other holiday lore, and whose main priority is stopping IOI winning and monetizing the Oasis. The main Gunter is Wade Watts, Ty Sheridan, who is the first to find a key and who reignites the race to find the egg. He is aided in this by fellow Gunters H, Artemis, Daito and Sho, and these are all people who definitely have personalities on screen. <laughs> That's a lie. <laughs> I knew you were lying. That's a lie. <laughs> in the source, the Oasis, where the majority of the action takes place, is realer than real, in most respects indistinguishable from the real world. In this film, it's a go-ram nightmare. A gaudy, visually repugnant world that looks considerably less realistic than many video games have played. This, however, is a complaint I'm happy to be talked around on. The portions of in the film um, set in the Oasis do need to be obviously different, so I don't really know how else you'd do it. It is, however, also mind-bendingly stupid. The great puzzle of the location of the first key, presented as a believable mystery in the book, is changed in the film to being found by driving backwards on a race. The greatest games players in the world 
took five years to try driving backwards in a racing game, something any five-year-old could do first time by accident. Uh, the challenges of the keys are necessarily changed for the different medium, but this is as poor an adaptation as I can remember, because nothing makes a lick of sense. Yeah, it's taking something that was not particularly high concept the first time and dumbing it down, which is really stepping it down quite a lot. It's dumbing down something that was already pretty dumb. Yeah, um, and just before I go on to, to reference that point, it's got, um, if you're not familiar with the book, um, and if you aren't, stay that way, you'll be happier. Uh, the first, well, they're actually, they've even shortened, the, made the difficulty less difficult in what they have to do in the film considerably because there are actually two steps for each thing in the book but after wade finds the first key then he has to do a challenge of trying to do step for step um recreation of matthew broderick's lines in the film war games mm-hmm. right so that's all more of the the 80s nostalgia masturbatory nonsense but i can see why that's not going to translate to screen not just because of rights issues like you can't yeah. just have a bit of a film where somebody's watching someone play a film that's not going to work <laughs> but to replace that entire thing with a race where someone goes backwards to win it like yeah. what really <laughs> to it i don't know who this film is for or why klein has adapted it from his own work remember in the way he has i mean again i give another good example in the book a crucial late story item is attained after several pages of how and why this is so significant, of course, uh, by a feat of rare gaming prowess. The same item, in a film that features a hefty amount of video gaming references and history, is instead attained by... A wager? A wager spoken about a largely inconsequential fact? (laughs) Who is the audience for this, aside from Ernie Klein? (laughs) Anyway... Renewed interest in the egg heightens the desire for Wade and his fellow Gunters to find it and stop Sorrento. And Sorrento and IOI will do almost anything, including doing a murder, to get the egg first. (laughs) There are a lot of references to things most of the target audience will have no knowledge of. The finale set piece of the book that I thought would be the one thing that would translate well to the screen is a massive disappointment. And someone wins. And Spielberg can't restrain his need to add in a dose of schmaltz. It ends, and I want my time and my better judgment back. <laughs> One thing has actually improved with transition to the screen, shockingly, and that is all of the fan pandering references. Because they are visual and often fleeting, rather than painfully spelled out in exhausting detail, you're allowed to miss some of them. And I thought I wouldn't be able to find anything positive to say about this mess. <laughs> See, I told you I'm a secret optimist. <laughs> Uh, that really is about it, though. It feels like Steven Spielberg may be trying to make Mark Rylance his new muse. But sadly, Rylance is now one for three with Spielberg, so maybe Bridge of Spies was a fluke. <laughs> Not that anyone comes out of this well, although some, Simon Pegg in particular, suffer particularly because of the bizarre choices made when adapting their characters from the book. Ty Sheridan is about as bland a protagonist as they can recall in a good long time, or at least one who wasn't named Worthington. Uh, sad to say that the most memorable thing about Ty Sheridan in Ready Player One is that terrible poster with him with his go-go gadget legs <laughs> at least I suppose in this film adaptation we're spared Klein's complete misunderstanding of either time or arithmetic 
as at no point in the film are we told things like Wade had watched Blade Runner or Monty Python and the Holy Grail 47 times each. To say nothing of the apparently thousands of individual TV episodes each watched multiple times that an 18-year-old who attended school every weekday would <laughs> totally have been capable of having done. I would like to point out there was not one ounce of hyperbole in what I've just read. <laughs> yeah. The characters in this the book have apparently read and watched and played video games enough to carry through several lifetimes, and they're 18. <laughs> I hate that book so much. The film, I merely wish I hadn't seen. Yeah, I remember reading the book just Christmas-ish this past year, because I know enough people that liked it who... <laughs> ordinarily don't seem to have been dropped on their heads as babies, <laughs> but it's absolute garbage, just to be scrupulously fair. Hot garbage of the lowest order. So, yeah, I wasn't really looking forward to this, but yeah, like you say, when Spielberg gets attached to a name, you give the film, you've got to give it at least some credence, but uh, no, and, and you know it was the right choice because, of course, Steven Spielberg is a, a noted hardcore gamer who would get almost all the references this, like, like in the interviews where he said he played Mario on his PlayStation. So you know, <laughs> you know that he's hardcore because that means he's mod chips a PlayStation and run homebrew emulators on it. So yeah, he he's clearly the right choice for a film so stuffed to the gunnels with video game references. Um, yeah, it's just bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, even though the comment on the visuals, because I did watch the sub- suboptimal copy of this, but the, all that did was really highlight how threadbare the story is and how absolutely anemic all the characters are. Your, your lead character is, is around for more of it, but he's so milquetoast that he, yeah. just, there's, just, there's just no depth to him. And everyone else has no character at all. They are just puppets. Uh, yeah, I know. It's, it's, the, the small bits of character that the book has... I've totally taken away for yeah. um, the film because in the book there's one character who turns out to be at least slightly more interesting than other people there and in this film she's just a woman that has a van yeah. <laughs> yeah. okay yeah and it does it's such a terrible job of world building and no one's thought about this no no one thinks has seen any of this make sense you know there was that trailer that came out a little while back where it's uh the, you know these guys running with their vr helmets up a street kind of pretending to be guns and it kind of wipes through to what they're seeing in the vr thing that's the you know assault on something or other and i thought you know what i thought that's dumb but that makes for at least a reasonably compelling visual trailer i'll give it that but no, that is apparently just how it works. Yeah. So if you want to be... There's a huge battle at the end where everyone's joining forces. So everyone's just put their VR helmets on in the middle of the street, running around, and apparently it's mapped one for one what you do in the virtual world as you do in the reality. So how aren't people just running into walls all the time? Yes. Who, who come up with this? What are they thinking? This is the dumbest idea. I know it just flashes past it, but I couldn't let myself go away from it. It's so stupid in a bitch. It shows how little you've thought about this world that yeah. you have scenes like that in it. And it, oh, it just on my nerves so much yeah i found myself like picking up and stuff like that too there's like the the huge set piece battle at the end which i had been looking forward to because i thought it was the most cinematic part of the book and yeah. yet it managed to be really boring they managed to like kind of not get all of the the bits i actually thought they weren't going to have mecha godzilla at all but they kind of ruined yeah. the reveal of that because yeah. the book that was very much presented as a oh no moment and <laughs> in, in the film it's just like oh it's mecha godzilla okay there's not no well, sense of dread jumped on top of it yeah oh, okay. <laughs> um and yeah so in that final battle at the end and you have you see like the the vr rigs that the people from ioi are in the enemy 
and apparently they're all in the virtual world right next to each other where the pods are in the um, mm. game so like if they get hit in a row they will all just happen <laughs> to be where they were in the office room <laughs> half of me wanted to let that go because at least give that a nice visual thing of the the white pods going red because that character had been killed I was like yeah mm. why are they together that doesn't make any sense <laughs> um, and the way that they have to have these um indentured servants doing things in the virtual world like picking things up and moving them to another location it's like what sort of video game is this who would design a system that was like this in the first instance yeah. you can just, oh, weird, that weird me, stuff that made me think of that mexican american film uh like sleep, sleep dealer which i think yeah. i think i may have mentioned on fuds and film at one point before um mm-hmm. it's certainly i know it did in the one-liner back in yeah. the one-liner days but there's a scene in that where basically low-paid Mexican workers are doing remote working. So they, they jack into a similar sort of terminal. It's sort of somewhere between this and the Matrix. and But then they are actually operating, like building drones and stuff. Mm. Like, okay, that I kind of understand. But in this, they are wage slaves who are moving computer characters. What? <laughs> I'm really confused. And that's another bit that, again, I'm not sure how you would directly translated to film but one of the few bits of the book that i enjoyed was the bit where the main character stops referencing pop culture for at least a chapter it's amazing (laughs) and actually does some sort of it goes underground into ioi and it's like it's more like the character being really resourceful and clever and things and uh, it's all red letter media refer to as being a bit a bit like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where they're effect- he's effectively like remembering to go into the future next week to leave the thing for himself in the past. It's <laughs> almost like that, but it's certainly compared to the rest of the book, the bit where he's doing this, he's going inside and trying to break into the enemy's computers and stuff. Actually, one of the more enjoyable parts of the book, you know, for very loose definitions of enjoyable, certainly. <laughs> in the film, no, they just don't bother with that at all. Yeah, uh, it's so strange, and it's supposed to be this uh, this great dystopian future, and it's like it kind of looks like now the the, the the world building in all ways is terrible. The, the virtual yeah. world and the supposed real world, and then there's that, and I saw it in the trailer, and I was like, okay, what are they doing here? But it was like, welcome to the revolution. Like, it thinks it's the Matrix, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, and it's in the film too, and it's like, so he gets broken out of his thing that he didn't have to break out of or something. <laughs> it's snatched <laughs> off the street. And, but it does play very like a, the Matrix, where they've rescued Neo, and then like welcome to the revolution. What? And then oh no, that's it. it. Basically, they had no meaning for anything else at all, which is a way to get the characters together mm. for some reason. And it's got me slightly worried, though. In many ways, you could probably guess this without having read it from what we've said. But in many ways, the book is massively derivative. It's got a lot of sort of matrixy ideas and particularly not that in itself snow crash is particularly original because the idea of virtual worlds and stuff is quite common it's been done a lot but mm. there's a lot of the book and the the way the oasis is presented it reminds me a lot of snow crash and i love snow crash it's one of my favorite books and it does the same sort of ideas but so 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 much better and without having to have a some sort of pop culture reference every three words <laughs> but with the mess that has been made of this i am now slightly worried about the amazon adaptation of 
snow crash that had me so excited last year and I'm like, oh no, I hope they don't watch this and get ideas. But otherwise, yeah, yeah. It's, it's hot garbage of, of the, the hottest <laughs> variety. I'm just checking because I've not heard anything about that snow crash Amazon in ages. Seems to be no particular news on that and the uh, ring rolled adaptations that Amazon were putting, this, putting about at the same time, you know. I'm sure they'll appear in the next couple of years and we can all look forward to that or not, as the case may be. <laughs> but yeah, Ready Player One's pish. <laughs> yes, that, that's... Uh, <laughs> Just in case we weren't clear. <laughs> in, in case we hadn't um, made this absolutely crystal clear to you so you're in no way persuaded <laughs> to go and watch this film, it is hot, hot, hot garbage. <laughs> and stinks every bit as much as you imagine that would... So, uh, let us stop bagging on that because well, we could be here all night and none of us wants that. Let's move on to Infinity War, Scott, um, which is a, a small, low-budget ensemble piece that has been surprisingly as popular at the box office. Yeah, it's another indie classic. Uh, it's Avengers Infinity War. Uh, due to the tyranny of release schedules and our schedule, I suppose, I'm aware that the latest in Marvel's Films for Baby series has been out for the best part of a month now, and that its box office success suggests that most who want to see this already have. I'm also aware that every podcast and their dog's <laughs> podcast have given their two hours plus of discussion on it, each, so I'll attempt to limit this uh, a little bit, uh, which shouldn't be a problem as while... It's enjoyable enough. The greatest trick Marvel ever pulled was suggesting there was any weight to this film at all. In short, not that there was much of a long version, the big purple Dolewall Thermos puppet master behind a number of the prior Marvel films' bad guys finally makes his move on collecting the fabled Infinity Stones to ins- install in his Infinity Gauntlet, a MacGuffin made of MacGuffins. This will grant him the power to achieve his long-wished-for but not particularly well-reasoned goal of killing half of the universe. Still, at least his vague overpopulation-based eco-doom-mongering here is a better reason than the comic books it's based on where it's to impress a chick. So, off he goes, a gathering with his army and lieutenants running, therefore running across, well, nigh on everyone featured in the previous Marvel films, who will have to team up to fight Thermos in a variety of novel combinations, throwing your favourite, least favourite, and not all that bothered about heroes together <laughs> to bounce off each other briefly in between the CG action set pieces we've grown to know and tolerate. Now, I suppose the critical thing to realise about Infinity War is that it's not a film, at least in the typical way you'd think of a film. And if you've not seen the bulk of the other Marvel films, then this will be a bamboozling experience. It is, I think rightly, not taking time to catch anyone up on what these characters are or what the situations they find themselves in. And yeah, I think if you're coming yeah. into the 18th film in a series that's clearly been building towards this, then you can't mm. expect to be catered to in terms of knowing what's going on. That would be no. foolish. No, like a child who's wandered to the middle of a movie and wants to know what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Were you following Kevin Feige's story? Yeah, I don't know why. Some people seem to get really triggered about this in the Marvel fanboy community. I mean, it's, it is an absolutely valid criticism. If you've not seen the previous stuff, this is going to be baffling to you. But yeah, <laughs> uh, and Marvel films are not yet required study material, no matter how popular they are. So there are going to be some people who have that, and it's, it's worth pointing that out. Uh, but instead, this is very much like the comic book crossover events that this models itself after. It's, at best, a celebration of all the things the previous films did best, carving a good number of great new character interactions between its best-developed stars. And at its worst, it's a competently produced series of CG things bashing into other CG things. But thankfully, it's skewing towards being 
funny than grim, mm. even with the stakes involved, which probably triggers the DC fanboys. Uh, but on balance, <laughs> I prefer my flyaway pop culture to be amusing over grueling. Uh, I get my actual emotions from real films. <laughs> and occasionally real life, but that's much less convenient. It's also deftly learned a lesson from the comics books in giving the illusion of depth. Uh, as much as if you're so inclined to, you can talk about the various nuances and theories about how this affects the rest of the films going forward for as long as you have available oxygen. And I'm very happy that this film brings so much joy and engagement to those folks. Uh, for a more casual observer one perhaps who's still only watching these films because of a podcast they're doing. Um, it's hard to see that these films shocking events as anything much more than an opportunity to do run a sweepstakes as to exactly how they will hit the undo button on it in the next part. Uh, which, well, but, but Scott, it's clearly going to stick. How can, how can that ending not possibly be meaningful? I mean, it's not like there's such a thing as the Marvel Cinematic Universe plan or release dates yes. scheduled in IMDb or anything. Yeah, so it's somewhat undermines most of it, doesn't it? Um, yeah, and I guess that might be a warning for Marvel on the part. Uh, the comic book arm of this business looks to be on the verge of going under a few years back, and in part that is because people got tired of shock character deaths that were quickly undone, and too many crossover events asking for too much investment in time and money from a weary audience. So it might not be too great an idea to take this path too often, but despite this negative tone I'm mainly taking for self-amusement, I am on board with Infinity War. Infinity War Part 2, at least. And I suppose your opinion of this film will most likely be a reflection of your opinion of the Marvel films as a whole. I like between half and two-thirds of them, and I like between half and two-thirds of Infinity War. Uh, for me, this is very much a film that I enjoy less every time I think about it, but thankfully, not thinking about Marvel films comes really easily for me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, as I say, I'm, I'm glad so many people find this so enjoyable, uh, but watching this multiple times and proclaiming it through work of genius is a bit too cool lady for my liking. Um, actually, maybe it's not the film I like uh, less, it's the fandom that surrounds it. <laughs> So, well, yeah, I think that reviews annoyed most people. Um, Bergman and Goddard were hacks. McGee's a true genius. <laughs> All the films that you like are ghastly. Uh, is that everyone? I think it is. Right. Uh, send your hate mail on a postcard. Uh, yeah, this, despite the tone taken, I've, when I watched it, I was I enjoyed it well enough. I came out of it and was entertained, and then all I started thinking about it, it all started flying apart, and I went, right, not doing any more of that for a while. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's an entertaining romp. Lots of nice little character touches a plot that's there and, and, and will give us something to do for the next film as well <laughs> that's, that's about it I can't really get all that excited about it I don't know why it's held in so regard but yeah it's fine I enjoyed it yeah um, I was worried about this film I was going to yeah. see it regardless because yeah not just because we do a podcast Scott but um, I've mentioned before I think that I'm something of a completionist I have seen every other Marvel film now there's no way I could not see this uh, mm. I've seen every Bond film, including the one where Roger Moore's a clown. So the, obviously I was going to watch a, a, the new Avengers film because it couldn't possibly be as bad as Octopussy. <laughs> you know, because it's not going to kill me, which Octopussy sounds like it might be capable of. It's such a terrible film. Uh, but yeah, so I was worried though, because it's just, it's got so many characters and there is simply no way they can give all of the characters anything worthwhile to do. Yeah. And it, so it doesn't. Yeah. But at the same time, it didn't it didn't really try to in that like it didn't try to force something in there for them. Some of the characters I assume are going to be there in the second part. They're only just like vaguely referenced, like Ant Man. Yeah, Hawkeye. Hawkeye's going to save everyone. That's who's yeah, going to be. Probably, yeah. Um <laughs> so a handful of characters weren't mentioned and some characters didn't have a lot. I mean, 
Captain America gets in this really doesn't, which is good because I don't really rate Chris Evans. And in, certainly in the last couple of films that he's been in, he's just, he's seeming less and less interested in this. As is Robert yeah. Downey Jr. I think he's really yeah, feels tired that, of it this now. I think they're really want to watch in the way that they've written Tony Stark's character to be sort of half disinterested in everything in the past few films because yeah you're you're really getting minimal Downey Jr. in this yeah. this is this is him showing up on autopilot and it's just because his character it kind of happens to coincide with the way his character's developed that that just about works but yeah he yeah. For, for someone who is such a pivotal role in this film he is only barely caring about anything that he does yeah, and that's sad and it, yeah it's and that does sometimes irritate me um, because even the amount of money they've backed up to his house yeah dump exactly and just put on top of him it's just for him to deign to show up and give an absolute minimal performance in a film like this yeah it's yeah. deeply unprofessional and I know that you can't necessarily equate acting with a lot of other jobs because there is an emotional component to to um to be able to do it. at the same time though yeah he's a professional He's being paid yeah. a lot of money to do his job. And so when people get paid a lot of money and don't do their job, it just it really rankles with me. Mm. Um, which is not to say that he's badness, but there's de- there's definitely a tiredness, a weariness um, yeah. that's coming through. And it's not just this, the way the role's written, as you say. Um, and so we're, I assume we're just going to talk about spoilers now because there's nobody that hasn't seen this film, right? Probably not, no. Um, I'm not going to particularly want to spoil this one. You know what more or less how it's going to go anyway, I think. But um, of all of the people that are killed at the end of this film, that I think the the two that might be dead at the end of the second film will actually be Captain America and oh, absolutely, um, yeah. Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man. Yeah. Um, which would be good to kind of, like, in the way that, that Han Solo ought to have died at the end of the Empire Strikes Back, or certainly at the start of Return of the Jedi. Um, that's Those characters really should. And... I'm almost certain it's going to go out with them saving the world because, well, how else could it happen? Um, yeah, yeah. And there's actually, there's so many dialogue references in this to that's what's going to happen to yeah. Iron Man. And the I've gone through, like, the Doctor Strange, I've gone through the 14 million things. This is the way it has to happen. And there's got to be a reason that he stopped him dying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, because he's going to be the person that saves the world. There's no way he's surviving and because there's no way they're... They're carrying on with that actor, I don't think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. You can see, you can tell by the way that Infinity War Two is timed exactly the same time as uh, their contract renegotiations, yes. isn't it? Um, yeah, and you know, Chris Evans doesn't want to do this anymore either. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, if he's he also goes, I wouldn't be surprised. But yeah, so backpedal a bit to where it began. This, yeah, so I was worried because I thought this whole film is just going to be an absolute mess, and it's it's got to cater to so many characters it has 17 films leading up to it which is just ridiculous and really the most amazing thing about Infinity War is that it's not an absolute mess Hmm. when it absolutely ought to be (laughs) so I actually really rather enjoyed it now I haven't had the problem with you of it flying apart the more I thought about it because I haven't thought about it but it was flying apart while I was thinking about it while I was watching it Um, (laughs) and actually much to my own surprise, I kind of didn't care. I was mostly enjoying it, and despite the fact that it's from so many disparate films, it didn't feel as disjointed as it might. The only thing that felt, I think because, and I've mentioned it before, the Marvel films, probably Thor, Ragnarok, or maybe the Thor films in general, 
maybe Guardians of the Galaxy are a bit more colourful, but in general, we don't have a particularly distinctive visual style. The films have tended to be quite competently shot, but pretty uninspiring visually. I don't mean the set piece of it, I just mean in terms of like the, the lighting, the way it's shot, it's all, you know, it's competent, but it's not remarkable, it's not standout, it doesn't really look particularly exciting. So for that reason, visually, most of the different bits have gone together quite well. The only, like, probably the bits with Thor and the noble rabbit rocket. I was really amused by that noble rabbit thing for some reason. <laughs> it's really stuck mm-hmm. with me. And amazing that one of the most touching parts of the film actually involved rocket. That's so strange. <laughs> mm-hmm. That that was like the one bit that looked visually different. But other than that, more or less, it fitted okay. And it's not. it wasn't just a huge mess that it could have and should have been. I thought maybe the Wakanda bits looked a bit pasted in, and that's very possible because they were. I'd love to know just how much of the Wakanda stuff was added after the success of Black Panther, because I think that took everybody by surprise. Yeah, that that final sort of Wakanda set piece at the end is really the... It, it was the point that I'd stopped enjoying it because I'd as soon as it just with that, yeah. as soon as it turned from what had up until that point basically been characters having little character moments to each other to what is one of the most boring CG set pieces in, in all of the Avengers uh, all of the Marvel films there's, it's just dull and it's yeah. boringly shot and it's it's a boring idea and it's boringly done my upside <laughs> no war rhinos so i i give it that yeah. and it's not quite as bad as the fight around the back of the airport in civil war but yes yeah. <laughs> it's pretty uninspiring lackluster and also that is the one of the bits where i start to get really nitpicky because they're supposed to be in Wakanda and it's supposed to be an entire country but the entire country's the size of a field. I was very confused yeah. by that because <laughs> you have all these people fighting each other in different parts and it's supposed to be, if not a country, at least a large city they're defending, but it appears to mm. be, you no, know, it's a field because no matter where anybody is, despite the fact they're on foot, they can get to any other character in the time it takes to, I don't know, transition a scene. <laughs> uh, it didn't make a lot of sense. And how is this person suddenly here? Oh, okay, right. Yeah, and it's one of those you, you start you start thinking about the Infinity Stones and things, and you don't want to think too much about that because you know, why would you just like use the Time Stone and rewind everything? No, no, don't look over there. Some, yeah. Something shiny. Don't think about that. <laughs> the other thing is what I expected to hate is it wasn't the same normal terrible Marvel villain. Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with Josh Brolin. Mm-hmm. because I, I really like Josh Brolin I think he's overcoming the the downsides of being you know a big walking pink rock <laughs> or something I don't know because they've been kind of half building up to Thanos being this great villain in the rest of the films but they actually did a pretty poor job of it because it's more like who yeah. and why should I care yeah so they never really did a proper job of that they should if, it's the one thing where they're the structure has let them down. It's worked for the most part of having like the thread of certain things go through and the things like the other films did have the Infinity Stones and you there were sort of hints of them and then they've got Thanos in the background who's meant to be this big villain was like, uh, no, nah, who? Uh, the guy in the rock in space in Avengers, wasn't that like 8,000 films ago? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> He had something to do with Loki, maybe. I don't know what's going on. Um, so the fact that 
they've actually managed to make a fairly compelling villain out of him is quite incredible. And it's one of the things I was really worried about this film. But Marvel continued to have a real problem with the passage of time. I said this so many times before, you know, and understanding sort of what words mean. Like, Civil War was basically a zero-sum scuffle. It wasn't a war in any way, shape, or form. The Age of Ultron was a long weekend of Ultron. And in this, again, Black Panther went from stable kingdom to anarchy and civil war, apparently in two days. <laughs> and so this is similar problems to it. Like, Thanos has been searching for the Infinity Stones for thousands, if not actual millions of years, and then finds all of them in the space of a week. Hmm. That, that's a bit weird mm. <laughs> uh, that's the least of the film's problems it's just, there were bits like that that bothered me uh, again probably best not to think about it and I fairly successfully achieved that because much to my own surprise I really quite enjoyed this film but I don't think I'm in any hurry to watch it again what I will say though is I think I mean I know it's going to sound really mean like I'm being cruel to these people but I've heard people talking about how like emotional they found the end of the film and I'm, have you ever had any real emotions in your life how can you yeah. be emotional <laughs> about that like when you know um again not just because of the way comic books and comic book adaptations work but again the fact that oh look spider-man's dead yeah but you know there's a spider-man film coming out next year right you know that this can't <laughs> possibly be lasting lasting so when you see all of the the well, sorry, not all of the very much not all of 50 percent of the characters disappear at the end I had absolutely zero emotion about any of it. And I, I, yeah, exactly. I generally wonder how anybody can have because, well, you know it's not going to stick. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the end of the next film, absolutely. Because as we suspect, you know, I would be really surprised if we're wrong about, at the very least, Iron Man dying, Tony Stark dying at the end of the next film. Yeah. For that, because um, I think they will, they'll not bring back that card if they do more Marvel films. I think they'll just reset everything. And it'll be new actors, new stories, but it won't be connected to this one, and that's not so bad. Yeah, or, or um, you just let it go. I mean, Iron Man's kind of played out his arc. He's had enough films about him. Um, if you need yeah, some possibly. sort of war bot, then there's still war machine knocking around. <laughs> you can do something with that or put someone else in that suit. You know, if you need that kind of sweeper role in your Avengers team. Yeah. But yeah, the Stark as a character's kind of had enough focus on him. We, we've mined more than enough out of that vein. So like trying to find, like trying yeah. find something more interesting to do now. But yeah, so like at the end of the next film, like if they kill him off, then I can see that people would get emotional about that because they, they cared about the character folded for ten years or whatever. Okay, but at the end of this film, like oh, it was such an emotional end. Like no, no, it can't be. You can't possibly feel any genuine emotion about that because you know it can't possibly stick. Yeah, uh, it's oh, it drives me crazy. But you do mention War Machine though, and that brings me to another thing too. Um, and it doesn't have to do with this film. It's more just another reason to bag on Civil War because it was terrible. I don't mm, understand yeah. how people like that film. Um, like the, the Civil War story really had absolutely no consequence for anybody. No. Because the <laughs> the story and it's like, oh, we have Civil War, there's this big falling out. It's like, oh, the world's in trouble again. I'll just phone Captain America. Uh, can you come and help? Aye, okay then. <laughs> um, and the one they couldn't kill off any character in Civil War, and the one person they hurt was a minor character, Don Cheadle's character. And as I knew would happen, well, he's got magic Tony Stark legs now, and he may as well not have broken his back because he's clearly yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm going to talk myself into not liking this film very much, but I actually did, even though I very much expected not to. But 
it's it's not the best, but but it's very far away from the worst. Yeah. Um, oh, and Tony Stark suits are actually magic now. Yes. Um, it. <laughs> yeah, that actually, no. Okay. Again, you're giving me another opportunity to bag on another film that I don't understand why people liked. Black Panther, right? When the whole idea of Black Panther was that Wakanda had the world's leading technology and stuff. And, like, and you said it too, Scott, you know, basically yeah. the Avengers had basically, they could just magic anything up. Yeah, Wakanda's like, oh, yeah. is just more blue. Yeah, yeah, there's absolutely nothing that Wakanda had with their apparent massive world-leading technology that Tony Stark didn't have or better. And yes, yeah. in this film, in Avengers Infinity War, Tony Stark actually has magic. Because <laughs> it just yeah. entire suits of armour appearing from, again, quick, look over there. So yeah, it just makes uh, Black Panther even more ridiculous. Uh, fortunately, I enjoyed this considerably more than Black Panther. Um mm. And there are a couple of recurring Black Panther characters. They didn't have a lot to do in this. Again, nobody can. There are too many characters. Mm-hmm. But um, Shuri, I think, is that the T'Challa's sister and the yeah. general woman? They were both appealing. But unfortunately, they also brought Black Panther back, who's quite astonishingly bland and could easily, if he were a white man, be played by Sam Worthington. It's <laughs> not an interesting character at all. Um, not necessarily saying that Chadwick Boseman is as bad as Sam Worthington, just that at least the character isn't interesting. Yeah. But yes, it's uh, it's much better than I had any right to be, is what I'll say. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed lots of bits. Lots of, basically anything where uh, Spider-Man's in it, that's cool. And, yeah, I like um, Anything Hunter where Bruce Banner is, Bruce Banner's incredible. Uh, another good, good little performance. It's nice to see um, sort of Hulk in the Hulkbuster armor. That was quite cool. That was interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. Although and, actually, and, and, talking just before, sorry, so I don't intend, I don't want to forget because it's going mind. Despite the amount of money that's in this, there were a couple moments of shockingly poor effects work, including one point where they've apparently just pasted a sticker of um, Mark Ruffalo's face onto the top of that armor. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely terrible. It's, the scale's completely off on it. it it's so bad. It's just, it's yeah, it's it's just like they're just like put a sticker on and it like it was there as a placeholder and they <laughs> forgot to go back and finish it off yeah <laughs> um sorry but yes you you're saying i interrupted you i'm sorry uh what else was i saying oh yeah um big blue dave batista is another great character in this uh but i love his performances is this uh, yeah he's only got about four lines but they're all really funny <laughs> and, i actually um, i didn't think chris pratt was all that great in this the rest of the guardians actually were pretty good but um yeah no they, they kind of gave him some sort of emotional lever and it didn't quite work no. whereas everyone else was just being silly and that was good and who else did i like that's that's probably about it the, the sort of butting of heads between doctor strange and iron man's pretty good chris Hemsworth is great yeah and I, i'm totally on board with um super saiyan thor and I hope they do have him stick around for a bit more. The only slightly disappointing thing was that was the, the absolute tonal whiplash coming from the end of uh, Thor Ragnarok, which was you know a gloriously silly film, and then the start of this film where it kind of half undoes most of that sort of vibe with well Thanos doing his Thanos thing and killing everyone. It's like oh that's that's a bit of a bummer, and um, yeah. So I don't know what happened with Thor going forward, but well. Uh, We'll see, I suppose. Well, it's not like there's that entire time stored thing. Yeah, um, hopefully that will all get undone. <laughs> yeah, the... Um, I mean, because they're actually... I suppose the people from Asgard come up first because those are the deaths that might stick. Um, yeah. And actually, I actually find myself thinking, oh, don't kill Idris Elba. I wanted to do yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I assume 
Loki's actually dead, and I hope so, because I've never yeah. liked that character, and I don't like Tommy so much, although he's, he's grown on me um, since Thor Ragnarok, I guess, but now that you've mentioned this, I'll, I know this is, this is so geeky and nitpicky and stuff, but it's, it, it's the sort of stuff that bothered me while I was watching it. So, apparently, this big spaceman, um, Thermos there, can batter Thor, actual god Thor, mm. right? <laughs> um, and he's not, he can't get out some metal and stuff but apparently can withstand the force of an entire star <laughs> you know stars are the most powerful things in the universe well you can direct the power of a star at Thor he gets a bit of sunburn and a wee bit of warm but um, somebody punches him at the start of the film and they can't do anything that that doesn't make a lot of sense really does it that bothered nope. me but um, <laughs> but that was perhaps the least the least the goodest thing um Again, Benedict Cumberbatch came out really well. Mm-hmm. I think he's one of the more interesting things rather than certainly Captain America, who was there. Yes. Yes. Um, but yes. Uh, so have we finished talking about these films? Scott? Yeah, I was just trying to balance out a little bit. There were there were a lot of points that I actually did enjoy in it. Um, you say, I, I think if you analyse this properly, it's, it's a bit of a mess. But then I say, it's not really a film in that regard. It's more of something that you'll watch in the future in 20 years when you're binge watching, yeah. uh, binge watching them all on Netflix and you get to this one and it's a nice little character crossover moment but yeah as as a film by itself it's terrible but <laughs> by as a as an installation into this sort of Marvel uh, tapestry that they're yeah. weaving it works pretty well. Yeah, well it, it has its place. You can watch it, having not seen all this, but you'd be absolutely foolish to. You've got to understand yeah. that it's part of a series. Um, I mean, some films need to stand on their own, but this is obviously not one of them. Uh, mm-hmm. also, the last thing I'll say, I think, though, is I waited for the the usual stinger, oh, and oh, I got oh. to it, and I, my first thought was, <laughs> eh? Yeah. And then I looked up what it meant, and it's like, eh, uh-huh. eh. <laughs> eh. Um, So... Yeah, apparently Miss Marvel, Captain Marvel, whatever. Okay, I mean, I know that film's going to happen. I know nothing about the character. Pretty sure I've used her in like Marvel versus Capcom at some point in the video game. That's it. <laughs> but yes, uh, as with all of these things, don't bother waiting for them because you have to sit through a scroll of everyone. I'm yeah. pretty sure that was everyone um, in the world on those ones and yeah, all you really get is there will be another Mar- Marvel film coming out in a bit, which you can just look up on IMDb. Plus you'll probably need to anyway because I don't imagine too many people know what that Captain Marvel symbol is. Certainly yeah. I didn't. I, I didn't look it up on Wikipedia either. So. That, I, I, looked, I, I looked up, I went from uh, to uh, 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 But I ask about um, if we finish talking about that, Scott, um, yep, because we have some other people who talk to you, talk, 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 talk to you, talk, I've talked to you so much I can't talk to you anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> people who've talked to us, we just asked you if you had any thoughts on these uh, films. First of all, uh, and referencing in our last episode, I said we were going to talk about Infinity War and Ready Player One. One of these films I quite enjoyed, one of them I hated. Well, I'm afraid you guessed wrong, Lewis. Uh, at Sonic Yoda on Twitter, uh, said, I bet Drew hated Infinity War. Sorry to disappoint you, but no, my, my hatred is fully um, reserved for Ernie Klein's nonsense this week. I I, actually, I expected to hate Infinity War, so I am not surprised that you thought that. But no, I quite enjoyed this. <laughs> you know, and if you did hate it, I'm totally with him. Excessive, overlong nonsense. 
none of which I can particularly disagree with. I just happen to enjoy this one. <laughs> then Perpetual Dumb Machine at Blake Wrights from the I'm the Host podcast said, Infinity War's all I've seen. It was okay as half of a story, but the breathless pace left it feeling inorganic. Prior installments took the effort to make the story accessible to newcomers, maybe impossible here, and Infinity War ends up more like a TV to movie tie-in or mid-season drama. And as I said to him on Twitter, but it's worth mentioning here for other people, I think if you expect to be able to pick this up, then you're you're just not be paying attention to the world. You need to have seen some of the others at least, and I, I think it would be foolish and pointless to try to make the story accessible to newcomers because it's part of an ongoing story it's not a standalone yeah and then he also said i'm curious about the witch's flower as you know by now we recommend that very much and very interesting breadwinner likewise but as far as ready player one goes it's a lot cheaper to just watch my80stv.com instead of paying ticket price for someone else's self-important nostalgic wankery <laughs> yes <laughs> very much yes <laughs> yes very, very much yes indeed, because it is self-indulgent, masturbatory nonsense, and it's absolutely terrible. Yet still not as bad as the book, quite impressively. <laughs> is that? That was all we had this week, I think, Scott. Yes, I think that's for a lot. But thank you for getting in touch. Please, don't be put off by our very strong opinions. We're still happy to hear others. <laughs> but yeah, I guess that's it for now. We will be back at the start of June. Two really good films... A pretty decent film and an absolute rotter. That's not so bad for this episode. Yeah. So, bye-bye. Ta-da.